At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to join us in our message series and dive deeper into what God's Word has for us today. Well, hey, Woodside family, Pastor Chris here. It is such a joy and an honor to be with you today. I want to give a special hello to all of our guests, friends, and visitors who are with us this morning. You know, this is a different type of morning. If you are just visiting with us, our typical approach or experience to worship is to have live preaching from your campus pastor. We really value that. We believe that's the best approach uh, to discipleship, that that's uh, biblical. But occasionally throughout the year, a couple of times throughout the year, I get a chance to join you by video just to be able to open up God's word with you, to celebrate with you all that God is doing through our church. You know, even though we are spread across 15 different communities, we are one spiritual family. And I pray that we will be able to celebrate uh, that God is at work in our midst and that we would uh, thank God and be able to declare that we are truly better together. Let me take a moment before we get to God's word to say how much I appreciate our campus pastors, your campus pastor. You know, recently my wife and I were able to get away uh, at a retreat with all of our campus pastors and wives. You know, that was long overdue because of COVID. We haven't been able to get away like that for uh, over 18 months. And it was such a joy to be with them. But every time I'm with our campus pastors and wives, I am reminded of how blessed we are as a church to have men leading our church who love God and his word, to have couples who are serving our campuses together who carry you in their hearts. You know, each one of our campus pastors and their wives love you deeply, pray for you earnestly, and are deeply committed to leading you well from God's word. So I would just simply ask that you would thank God for that blessing. Uh, get to know them if you haven't. But most of all, please pray for them. The weight of pastoring is a heavy weight uh, for them and their families. They probably would never tell you that, but if you could just join me in praying for them, that would be a huge, huge blessing. You know, in a divided world that's divided politically and socially, and coming up this Saturday, we'll know here in Michigan what it's like to be divided even along football lines. Praise God that uh, though we may be divided on Saturdays, we're united on Sunday. Today, we get a chance to celebrate all that God is doing and to declare that we are on one team and that is Team Jesus. You know, uh, twice a month, our campus pastors get together and we spend a time sharing about God at work, God at work in your life, God at work in our community, God at work through his church. And it seems like the highlight of those times this year has been a celebration of baptisms. We've been able to celebrate the amazing declaration of faith that has happened across all of our campuses this year. You know, there has been so many extraordinary testimonies of men and women who have come to faith in Jesus. We have seen uh, spontaneous baptisms at campuses like Lake Orion and Plymouth and Detroit. 
Here at Troy, we uh, got a chance to baptize a young man who was a Hindu convert who came to faith in Christ and said, I want to be baptized. Praise Jesus for that. I even got a call a little while ago from a young man who says, I'm getting ready to go to college, but before I board the plane and fly across country and start my college chapter of life, I want to be baptized because I've put my faith in Jesus as a result of the preaching that I've been hearing at the church. It was my joy to baptize him in the middle of the week. We filled up the baptismal and we baptized him and we celebrated with his family and our staff there to rejoice. It's been awesome also seeing some of our leaders uh, getting a, a chance to celebrate their kids being baptized. If you are a deacon or a campus pastor or a deaconess or an elder who has uh, seen your child profess faith in Jesus, just know that my wife and I are rejoicing with you and we thank God for how his grace is at work in our families. But you know, while we have been celebrating baptisms here, I'm reminded of how hard it is for Christians around the world. You know, recently I came across an article uh, in a Christian post whose headline was that uh, police are harassing churches in China out of fear of baptism that police are surveilling and harassing pastors and church leaders in China because they're afraid of them baptizing people out of this atheist uh, communism into faith in Christ. Praise God for brave pastors and leaders like Wang Yi, who oversees Trinity Harvest Church, who said that he was willing to defy this order not to baptize men and women into faith in Christ because of his honor for God. Praise God for that uh, level of courage. Recently, my heart was broken as well as I'm sure yours has been as we have watched what's happened in Afghanistan. You know, as men and women um, have been displaced out of their country, out of their homes, if Christianity is being persecuted in that land, I've been praying, I'm sure you have as well, for the church in Afghanistan. And praise God that we can even talk of a church in Afghanistan. 20 years ago, we couldn't, but now there are 30,000 estimated believers who are shining the light of the gospel brightly in that country. And recently, uh, through our Global 100 initiative, which is a missionary initiative we have here at Woodside, that over the next season, we want to send out 100 next generation, mission-minded young men and women who are committed to the global church. Well, recently we had a young man come to us named Andrew, who's been a part of that program, who said, God has spoken to me uh, about my life and I am being called to serve the church in Afghanistan and to minister in that part of the world. Uh, this is through uh, a deep season of prayer. So we lay hands on him and he's uh, been deployed to a Central Asian country so that he can care for Afghan refugees there. But my question for you as we think about children being baptized and men and women in our community being baptized, as we think about what's happening around the world is simply this, why should we even care? Why should we care about what happens in China? Why should we care about what's happening in Afghanistan? Why should we care about the Hindu or the Muslim communities in our cities? Why should we care about the children in our neighborhoods? Why should we even care about the couple next door? 
Well, the simple answer to that is because Christ has called us to love our neighbors. That's what we're going to talk about today is loving our neighbors. Because if we don't do what God has called us to do in loving our neighbors, how will they ever hear the gospel? How will they ever profess faith in Christ and experience the grace and the freedom and the mercy that he alone offers? You know, recently I was reading a book that brought deep conviction to my heart. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called The Art of Neighboring. Even if you haven't heard of it, you'll get this concept. It's a book that really challenges us around the question of how good are we doing at being neighbors, at loving our neighbors. And one of the exercises in the book is to draw squares around your house, four squares each direction. And in each square, uh, there's supposed to be uh, a representation of a family that's in your neighborhood. It's a question of how well do you know your neighbors? And so what you're supposed to do in each one of those squares is to write in everything you know about that neighbor, uh, their names, the names of their children, birthdays, you get the picture. Well, here I am trying to fill out my squares and uh, man, was it convicting as I found how tough it was. And here I am, I've been in my neighborhood now for almost three years, I'm a pastor, I love Jesus, but yet I'm finding it really hard to name my neighbors, their children, and uh, finding it even harder to think through evangelistic conversations that I've had with them. Again, if we don't share the gospel with them, how will they ever know the hope the healing and the love that Jesus offers. So the question is, how are we doing at loving our neighbors? Today I want us to look at a passage of scripture that really calls us to share and show the perfect love of Jesus to our neighbors. I want us to look at a passage of scripture that really uh, opens our eyes to how you and I are called to do that. And when I say you and I, I mean that. God is not going to uh, send some missionary from across the country to come and save and witness to your neighbors. It is our job to do that. Don't wait for some missionary to knock on your neighbor's door to share the gospel with them. That's why he placed you and I in that neighborhood. We're supposed to share and show the perfect love of Jesus to our neighbors. Well, how do we do that? Dr. Wayne Grudem, who is a theologian that's been read by many uh, in uh, his book, Bible Doctrines, chapter 26, he focuses in on the threefold purpose of the church. What is the purpose of the church? And he says in that chapter that the church has three purposes. First is worship. We're supposed to worship God in gatherings like this. Second is to nourish one another. We're supposed to care deeply for one another and to meet one another's needs. And then thirdly is evangelism and mercy. We're supposed to witness to our neighbors and to our community. You know, as I think about that, I think about three directions, up, worship, in, nourish, out, witness, up, in, and out. Those are the type of lives we're supposed to live. And that's been a passion for Woodside from our very inception to be a community of people who are living up, in, and out lives. Now, if we were to rate ourselves at how we're doing at that, I would imagine that most of us would give uh, maybe high marks for us living an up life, a life of full devotion to him, loving his word. 
And many of us would even say that the inward part is doing pretty well. We love each other well. I see it on a daily basis. I've experienced it firsthand. But when it comes to out, I believe there's so much areas for personal growth and for us to grow as a community together. So what does God's word have to say to us about this? Well, I believe that Luke chapter 10 speaks volumes to us. Can you go with me to Luke chapter 10, verse 25? And we're going to go through verse 37. And I believe what we're going to see here is that we are called to share and show the love of Christ to our neighbors, the perfect love of God to our, our neighbors. But man, is that tough. This parable has been classically called the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But most theologians will tell you that arguably this is the most misunderstood parable of Jesus. Now, why is it so misunderstood? It's because it is full of so many unexpected twists. The victim is unexpected. The villains are unexpected. The hero is unexpected. And the moral of the story is certainly unexpected. Let's look at what he tells us about uh, our call to show and share the perfect love of God with our neighbors. It says in verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, referring to Jesus, to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. From the outset, Jesus helps us to understand that this is a uh, a moment in his ministry in which he is being tested, not out of sincerity, and we're going to see this in a moment, but he is being tested by the religious leaders of his day. You know, the religious leaders of Jesus' day despised him because they saw him as a threat. And so all of the religious leadership, the religious elite, if you will, tried to publicly discredit him and privately they tried to assault him. And one of the methods that they used were to ask him these kind controversial questions. If you were to read a complimentary passage to this one, Matthew chapter 22, you'll see that they tried to trip him up on questions of taxation, governmental questions like that. They tried to trip him up on theological questions like the resurrection and what happens after we die. And now here we see uh, them trying to trip him up on a matter of the law. This person who asked the question was a teacher of the law, what we would call a law professor, the law of Moses. This was a person who was an expert in the Mosaic law who would argue in court for cases and would stand as a judge. This was no uh, novice as it pertained to the law of Moses. This was someone who knew God's word. And that is why when he asked the question, what will it take for me to inherit eternal life or to be justified? Jesus asked him in response, how do you read the law? What does the law say? And he, in response, correctly answers the question. He says that the law, according to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse number five, tells us that we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, with all of our souls, with all of our minds, and with all of our strength. And we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves. 
Jesus says, you are right. Go and do that and you will live. Well, what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that justification requires that you and I show the perfect love of God. That justification requires that you and I love God perfectly and love our neighbors perfectly. Think about that standard for just a moment. That standard is far too high for me and far too high for you. I mean, which one of us loves God uh, with all of our souls, all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our strength? You know, I have good days. I certainly have days where I wake up and I worship God and I feel pretty good at the end of the day because I've lived a, a good moral life or I've shared my faith or I've helped someone, uh, but that's not every day. There, there are plenty of days where I get to the end of the day and my heart is heavy because I say, God, there's so much I could have done for you that I didn't. There's so many opportunities I missed because I was so focused on myself. Maybe you've experienced what it's like to uh, look in the mirror and say, God, I am falling short of your call for my life. None of us, none of us love God perfectly. When you talk about loving your neighbor perfectly, let's be honest, the definition of being a good neighbor has changed over uh, the decades, hasn't it? It used to be if you were a good neighbor, you were cooking meals for uh, other neighbors in your neighborhood. You may be letting them borrow sugar. You may be cutting their grass and, and maybe you do a little bit of that every now and again. But for most of us to be a good neighbor today means that you don't cause any trouble, that you don't have uh, any uh, conversations that are too deep with your neighbors that you wave as the garage door opens and closes, and you try to stick to yourself. Well, that's not the type of neighboring that Jesus has called us to, and this story is going to bear, bear it out. But I believe it's important for us to understand this, that according to the law, justification required that we love God and our neighbors perfectly. And I believe that's the point of this particular exchange. Jesus wants this man to know that if justification requires that you and I love God and our neighbor perfectly, none of us measure up and all of us stand condemned before God because none of us love God perfectly or love our neighbors perfectly. Well, the exchange goes on. And as we look at uh, the next set of verses, verse 29, he says this, but he, referring to this teacher of the law, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with this story. Before I read the story, I just want to focus for just a moment on this man's tendency, uh, like us, like me, like you, to justify himself when he saw himself trapped by God's word. It was very clear to him that there's no way that I can measure up to this standard of showing the love of God perfectly uh, to my neighbors or to love God uh, perfectly himself. So I stand condemned, but there's a loophole. And so he searched for a loophole and his hope was to be able to find a loophole that would get him out of this problem. You know, every single one of us searches for loopholes. I don't know about you, but 
I know I have that tendency, and many of us are raising ki kids that have that tendency as well. You know, it was a little while ago that uh, I came into one of my ch children's uh, rooms, and uh, it was a mess, and they wanted to do something socially with their friends, and I said, the only way you can do it is if you get all of these clothes off the floor, to which the child responded to me and said, absolutely, Dad, I'll do it. Uh, they came back to me about an hour later and took me to their room, and I'm telling you, their room looked pristine. It was great. I thought one for dead. I just won a victory. I got them to clean their room. Well, a little bit later, I heard my wife calling from the other room, another child's room, as she opened our other child's closet only to find the clothes from the first child's room in the other child's closet. I almost lost it. I went to uh, the, the first child and I said to them, how in the world did you put your clothes into your sister's closet? Didn't I tell you to clean your room? To which they responded, no, no, no. You didn't tell me to clean my room. You told me to get the clothes off the floor. And that's exactly what I did. We all look for loopholes. Adults look for loopholes. Kids look for loopholes. This lawyer was looking for a loophole. He was seeking to justify himself. But as one theologian said, desiring to justify himself uh, in this passage, Walter Lightfield says, the only way this man or any person can justify himself is to limit the extent of the law's demands and consequences on our lives. Maybe we've tried to do that before. Maybe you've tried to do that before. Limit the extent of what God requires. But friends, this is clear. What God requires is for us to love him perfectly and to love our neighbors perfectly. And so Jesus responding to his question, well then, who is my neighbor, tells this story. Verse number 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Why would Jesus uh, shape a story in which the religious leaders of the community look so poorly? This was a story that Jesus made up in that moment to drive home a deep spiritual point that if justification requires us to love God perfectly and love our neighbors perfectly, then none of us measure up. And he uses, in this particular story, two groups that everybody would have assumed gets it right. Surely the priests get this right, but Jesus says, not so fast. The priests in this story saw a man who was beat up on the roadside. You know, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a real road. It was known during that time as the road of blood. It was known as a place where robbers often took advantages of passers-by. And so I don't know in this story why a Jewish man would be walking this road knowing the danger, but again, Jesus has a point in sending this man down this road in this story. But what we do know is this, is that this priest walked by this man, this Levite who was supposed to be again a religious leader in that day, walked by this man. 
You know, what Jesus is driving home is that even priests and Levites can't measure up to the perfect expectations of the law of God. We don't love God perfectly and we don't know, love our neighbors perfectly. You know, there are times when God uh, exposes, even in my own life, how much I have to grow. Uh, recently, he did that with new neighbors who moved into our community. We had uh, a couple and their beautiful kids move into our community. It's from a Hindu background. And we knew they moved in, but life had been busy and I hadn't gotten a chance to go by and, and meet them or invite them into fellowship or even say hello. A few days after they had moved in, the wife of the couple uh, came to visit our home. And she knocked on the door. My wife was at home at the time and she brought a dessert to my wife. And she says, in our religion, this day is set aside for us to pray for our neighbors. And today I'm praying for you. How can I pray for you? Well, later on, I got home that night. I saw the dessert on the table, was pretty excited about that. And I asked my wife, where did it come from? And she told me the story about how our Hindu neighbors had set aside a day to pray for us. And man, what conviction I felt because I had not yet set aside a day to pray for them. I have been so busy doing God's work that I forgot the call to love my neighbor. Priests don't always get it right. Levites don't always get it right. None of us always get it right. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is that we all fall short. So what hope do we have if justification requires us to love God perfectly and love our neighbors perfectly and none of us do it? Well, it goes on in this story and introduces another character, verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound, him, uh, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And then Jesus asks a powerful question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You know, each one of these characters represents someone really important and really powerful. The man who fell by the wayside represents in, in so many ways those of us who are abused and battered by the world. The Levites and the priests who walk by represents the church leaders who are supposed to care, the spiritual leaders who are supposed to care, but oftentimes miss the mark. But who is this Samaritan? Who is this person that stops on the way to their destination because they see someone battered and bruised? Who stops everything to care for those who are wounded, to sacrifice their own personal uh, well-being and safety so that they can rescue someone else who has been uh, beat up by robbers? You know, to use this term Samaritan, Jesus was a masterful storyteller. He would have known that this would have been the antithesis of what the crowd would have expected. The crowd in this story would have expected the priests and the Levites to be the heroes. And this Samaritan, which represented a group of people who were considered to be theologically off, 
socially inappropriate. He would have represented the villain for sure in their minds. That would have been their expectations. But Jesus turns the story upside down. He doesn't give us what we expect. And the Samaritan ends up being the hero. But this story is not about Jews or Samaritans primarily. It's about justification, because remember, the question that the man asked, the lawyer asked, is what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Why is Jesus telling this story? To expose to the man first how bad he is. You know, so often when we go to share the good news, we forget the importance of sharing the bad news, that we are not able to be justified in the eyes of God because none of us live up to his standard. The weight of that reality would have been crushing to the lawyer. But then the good news comes in. But there is one. There is one who laid down his life to care for those of us who have been battered and bruised by life. There is one who wraps up our wounds. There is one who is willing to sacrifice from his, himself for our own care. There is one who uh, will provide for us the safety, the protection, the rescue, and the salvation that we need. This Samaritan in this story is a Christ-type figure. It represents, he represents in this story, Jesus, the only one who can save us. And so what's the point? It's only Jesus, only Jesus can, can love God perfectly and love neighbor perfectly. Only Jesus shows us not only the love that our souls need for salvation, but shows us the way that Christ has called us to live. And so Jesus asked the question, who of the three was a neighbor to this man? He tells the lawyer, it's not about who is my neighbor. It's about who's been a neighbor to me. And ultimately, Jesus is the one who has neighbored us. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has loved us. The man says in verse number 37, he says, the one who showed him mercy. I want you to think about that for just a moment. He couldn't even fix his mouth to say the Samaritan was a neighbor because he despised Samaritans so much. So he simply described his behavior. The one who showed him mercy. Surely by this point, he would have been exposed. He would have seen that I would have never done this. I would have never stopped on this road, the road of blood to help this man. I would have walked by him and maybe you and I would have done the same. But praise God, Jesus doesn't walk by us. He saves us. Jesus was sharing the gospel with this man. That salvation is found in Christ alone. But it's these final words that I want to leave you with. Jesus says at the end of verse number 37, and Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You and I are called to follow the way of Jesus. We will never be perfect. And praise God, our salvation is not based off of our performance. It is fully based off of grace, the grace that is found in Christ. Only Jesus is perfect. But when the one who is able to love us perfectly and who loves the Father perfectly steps into our hearts. He gives us a capacity to love our neighbors. And that's what we're called to do. So why should we care about the couple next door or the kids in our neighborhood? 
or the Hindus or Muslims in our city? Why should we care about the atheist down the street or those in China or Afghanistan? Why should we lay down our lives for others? Because he has laid down our, his life for us. And since he laid down his life for us, we who have put our trust in him ought to go and do likewise. If you have never given your life to Jesus today, I just wanna encourage you to do so. Maybe you know what it's like to be wounded and bruised. The only one who can heal you is Christ. And today, before you leave, I would love for you to just express uh, to your campus pastor or to some of the leaders that you want to uh, start a relationship with Jesus, and we would love to pray with you. For those of you who have put your faith in Christ already, it is our call to go and love our neighbors as Christ has loved us. You know, in the weeks to come, we're going to be sharing our vision for the future. And our vision for the future will center upon the difference that happens in the community when Woodside is there. Across 15 communities, there have been so much life change. And I pray that that will continue to deepen. But it can only happen when we together say we're going to follow Christ and love others like he loved us. In the weeks to come, you're going to hear more about what God is doing in our church. But for now, I simply want to leave you with this, that if he loved us in a way that transformed us by uh, his sacrifice, let's go and do the same in the lives of others. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head over to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.